We'd like to thank Spark for being the presenting sponsor of African Tech Roundup's podcast miniseries on the entrepreneurial progress being made in some of the world's most vulnerable states. Spark is a Dutch NGO that bridges the gap between higher education and entrepreneurship in fragile and conflict-ridden regions of North and Sub-Saharan Africa and the Middle East. To learn more about Spark and the opportunities they're creating, visit sparkonline.org. That's spark-online.org. I'm Andy Lemasugu, and coming up is a relaxed three-way conversation with a professor of forced migration and international affairs at the University of Oxford and the co-founder and director of Spark. In this chat, my guests and I will discuss the awkward state of play within the global foreign aid industry, reference instructive live case studies, and try to define what winning should look and feel like in terms of helping turbulent regions of the world navigate towards sustainable economic growth. This podcast is the first installment of a seven-part series which will shed light on the sheer resilience and ingenuity of displaced peoples. It will also gauge the progress being made in unlocking invaluable intellectual and entrepreneurial potential within vulnerable regions of Africa and the Middle East. We'll interrogate whether or not the financial means deployed by wealthy countries in order to stimulate sustainable economic growth in fragile regions is being dispensed sensibly. And perhaps most crucially, we'll deliver fascinating first-hand insights about the realities of building futures in difficult places. This podcast was taped at the fringes of Spark's sixth annual Ignite Conference, a premier gathering of refugees, entrepreneurs, educators, private sector actors, government leaders, academics, and NGOs. This is an independent African Tech Roundup production. The opinions expressed by me, your host, and those of my guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the presenting partner, Spark. I'm Alexander Betts. I'm a professor at Oxford University, and I work mainly on refugees with a focus on the economic lives and contributions that refugees can make, and most of my research is in East Africa. My name is Yannick Dupont, um, one of the founders and CEO of uh, Spark, a Dutch nonprofit working in 15 fragile states. Uh, so states coming out of conflict, uh, helping youth to either start their own company or get access to a scholarship to study at university. Welcome to the African Tech Roundup, Alex and Yannick. Thank you. Great to be here. So let's talk about your journey to this point in your career. Um, Alex, you're at Oxford. How is it you, you choose refugees as a sort of academic area? How do you focus on the East African region specifically? And perhaps how has this changed your life? Well, it's interesting that we're sitting here in the Netherlands because that's where my journey began. I was a 19-year-old undergraduate and I had a long stretch of summer holiday in front of me. Not much to do, lots of free time, studying economics. And it was the time of the Kosovo crisis in 1999. So I'm, I'm dating myself by saying that. And I came to work in a reception center for asylum seekers over here. People from Kosovo, Bosnia, Liberia, former Zaire, Iran, Iraq. And I expected to feel a sense of pity. But what I found was a great source of inspiration. I was taught table tennis by an Iranian Olympian, learned the basis of public international law from a Bosniak lawyer. And what struck me was these people were stuck indefinitely in a bureaucratic system, waiting to find out if they were refugees without the right to work. And they had more talents than I had, frankly. Um, and why weren't they allowed to work? Why couldn't they contribute to society? So I took that question away with me, studied in my economics undergraduate dissertation, the economic lives of refugees, carried on with that through my graduate studies. And when I started to visit refugee camps in Africa, I found 
around a parallel tragedy that people with skills, talents, and aspirations were locked out of labor markets. They had the ability to be contributors and they were denied that. And so I continued on that path, studying around the world, the situation of refugees. And today, Africa is the continent with more refugees than any other region in the world. That was the case for a long time before the Syria crisis as well. And so it was the logical place for me to go and study. And that's particularly of concern to me as a British citizen, very aware of the legacies of colonialism, not wanting to replicate that, but wanting to work in a continent where for better and in, for the most part, worse, uh, we've made a bit of a mess of the continent. And so I wanted to marry those two interests. And Yannick, what brought you to this space? Um, perhaps tell us a little bit about Spark and what led you there. Well, actually, like Alexander, actually war. And in our case, it was the Bosnian war um, and the fall of Srebrenica. So I remember that we were sitting there with a couple of students in Tuzla, northeast Bosnia, when um, that horrible genocide happened. And so it was deeply personal, I think, for many of us to see that in post-war Europe, where we had all been told at university that there would be no more thing as genocide, that we've learned our lesson from the Second World War and we're all now better off and things are stable, that that could happen in modern Europe. So this was the beginning of our journey. Um, that matters for Spark because um, we then very quickly realized actually that, and that's another thing that I recognize from what Alexander is saying, that young people in Bosnia, later we worked in Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, we're now in 15 of these countries, that actually young people in these locations actually are extremely bright. Um, you have an enormous wealth of highly motivated youth that is just being trapped. And that whereas you, the traditional aid structure basically supports humanitarian aid, some, some post-war reconstruction, we didn't find much that actually um, trying to unlock the potential of youth that actually can do much more than just, you know, go along, uh, get their degree, graduate, try to find a, a state job. Um, but that actually there is a whole generation of bright young people that can start their own company that actually can excel and study abroad or try to secure scholarship. So I think we focused our work very much then from then on, on, on that segment of the society that would actually be hopefully in the future in charge of running the country, or at least uh, trying to kickstart the economy. I mean, we were speaking offline before we started this conversation, um, you know, on tape, about how we're sort of navigating an age of authentic expression and everyone's sort of shaking off their filters and there's a sort of celebratory mood around being able to say what you think, whether you're a politician, a private citizen with a Twitter account, uh, uh, a refugee that's in a really bad situation in some part of the world uh, that's that's fragile at the moment. And, and I think there's two ways to look at this dynamic. One, I guess we're telling each other more truths, or at least versions of the truth than we ever have perhaps as a as a civilization and then there's some people who see a worrying trend to perhaps a desire to sort of institutionalize morality and, and issues like that so there's this massive sliding scale uh, I'm, I'm i'm bringing to our conversation now where on that scale would you say you you feature alex and why yeah i mean there's a, a shift in terms of how open 
uh, access is to having a voice in global debate now. And we hear a lot of discussion about a post-truth society on a global scale where anyone can put forward ideas through social media, have a platform if they so wish, and if they acquire enough followers. But equally, we also hear narratives of filter bubbles where people listen to what they want to listen to, subscribe to the media they want to listen to, and get a certain confirmation bias in terms of their prejudices and values. I also think it's important to recognize that this isn't an open, if you like, democratic global space. There's still power imbued in it. It still has money coming from Russia and other sources, from global media giants trying to shape public opinion, trying to influence democratic process. And that has consequences that it often gives a platform to the extreme voices. And we see in the areas I work in, like the politics of immigration, how those extreme voices increasingly acquire a platform, large numbers of followers, and we get polarization. The extremes and those with the motivation to have the loudest voice are often those that speak the loudest. And that's why I see a world of greater polarization where we're hollowing out the center, we're hollowing out a middle ground. The consequence in Europe is that we see the rise of populist nationalism. We see scenarios like Brexit in the country I come from. And it's very worrying to see that shift towards populism, towards nationalism, that I think has been incubated in a new space of radical transparency. On the other hand, I do acknowledge the opportunities there that it can give voice to excluded, marginalized people if they have an ethical framework, if they put forward that voice wisely, if they act collectively, they too can subvert some of those dominant narratives and seek something that can be transformative. So I think we need to recognize the potential of technology and open media is there for all, but there are real risks that the powerful and those with vested interests end up speaking the loudest, dominating and often creating false and sometimes exclusionary or even xenophobic narratives. And so, Yannick, what's your filter for determining how and when to channel goodwill to a certain part of the world, a geographic region? What's your filter even for or defining what constitutes a fragile state and what you as an organization would like to draw attention to and perhaps seek to, to rectify through interventions? Well, I think there's two components to that question for us. I think one is um, where we have capability to react. I mean, there is obviously more places in this world than we could potentially go to. And I think we've been undergoing a phase of rapid growth. We used to be active in maybe three, four places. We're now in 15. We're actually going to reduce the next coming years to about 10 or 11 because we realized we need to have a certain scale in a location to have real impact. So... We'll continue growing like we've been doing, but we'll try to grow even faster in a lesser number of locations so you have bigger impact. Um, I think when you looked at Spark at the beginning, it was very emotional-based. Uh, you turn on your TV, you see the Bosnian conflict. So, hey, we took a bus. We went to Tuzla in Bosnia. Um, so the filter, the way we now determine where we actually intervene is 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 much more scientific, if you like. So we look at things like what are we good at? So which products to help entrepreneurs do we have well-developed? Then we look at locations where we could potentially intervene if there is already other actors. So we've done a scouting in Africa. I remember we visited maybe 20 countries. I think we scrapped five of the list because they were basically holiday locations for aid workers um, to be a bit provocative. 
I mean, we were tripping literally over five, six other organizations that were doing the same as what we are doing. So we figured, let's not go here. Um, so we always try to scrap off our list places that where we would not have a real added value. Um, I think we've also added to the list locations where it would be easier for us to intervene. So we're now very strong in the Middle East, Arab-speaking countries, um, East Africa. Um, so I think that's where our focus will be. And if you just open another location, maybe in um, Bangladesh, which emotionally was was our first reaction when we saw the crisis with Myanmar, we decided not to because it would just be overstretch and we would be investing in a huge amount of energy into helping a relatively small amount of people. So then let's leave that space to someone else to cover. So I think we've become more realistic maybe in choosing where we intervene. And maybe one, one other factor for us is very important that we find, um, it's actually crucial, that we find some really good vibe with local counterparts, being both governmental actors, um, NGOs, uh, the tech and business community. That was going to be my next question. What sort of signals do you do you look for and and act on from the places you end up deploying? Well, first of all, I mean we're pretty we're pretty adventurous, right? So the places we go to are not easy. So uh, it's not like we expect a perfect environment when we arrive. But one of the things that's really important is to find good um, visionary local leadership. Um, business community, civil society, but also within government. Um, and you can imagine some of the places we work in, um, being it fragile states, uh, some of it coming out of uh, repressive environments. That's pretty hard sometimes to find this kind of mentality. But again, like, you know, like when a lot of people here in Holland or in South Africa, when you watch TV, you see a conflict far away, you usually see the green picture. But usually when you scout well locally, you will always find thought leaders in government, in business and in civil society that you can then work with. But there have also been locations where we thought that, for example, the restrictions on our work would be too high or we didn't find a proper local business climate that we could build on that we then decide not to intervene because it would not lead to significant um, impact or even join work, you know, it also has to still stay uh, interesting and um, challenging for our, uh, for our folks. And so Alex, uh, given the research you've done, the, the East Africa focused research, certainly, how do you define winning when you reflect on all the years you've observed the various shifts, perhaps some, you know, some of the tragic occurrences that have happened in the East African region, you know, Rwanda comes to mind in terms of like the genocide, Ethiopia, thanks to the images put out in the world uh, by the famous Kenyan journalist, Mohamed Amin, uh, of, of that, you know, tragic drought and famine in, in Ethiopia, which somewhat branded the region as desperate for the world's attention, you know, at the time. Um, all of these things, which perhaps some would have sparked your interest and your desire to go and find out what and how you, you can be part of facilitating change, or at least observing it and allowing us to learn from it. How do you define winning progress in that context or the lack thereof? Yeah. So now I work on refugees and displacement and displacement today is a fragile state challenge. 68% um, of the world's refugees come from just five countries all fragile countries, all chronically fragile. Which ones? Myanmar, Syria, South Sudan, Somalia, and Afghanistan. And we could add to that list Venezuela, 
3 million people have left Venezuela. They're not legally defined as refugees because rather than fleeing political persecution, they're fleeing uh, the political, the, the economic consequences of the underlying political situation. Um, but when we recognize that, the legal definition of a refugee is someone fleeing persecution starts to look a little bit outdated. And we realize the underlying problem is that we're not good at addressing fragility. Um, countries are fragile for different reasons, whether it's um, dictatorship, authoritarianism, identity-based divisions, the legacies of conflict and failed post-conflict reconstruction. But that's a challenge that we struggle with. And if we could put those countries back together somehow, which the West has a failed record of doing, then the displacement challenge would be absolutely reduced by several multiples. For me, though, Assuming we can't resolve that, it becomes about addressing, addressing the symptoms, improving the lives of refugees and displaced populations. For too long, though, the default response has been a humanitarian response, where we provide people with food, clothing, shelter in refugee camps. Camps like the Dadaab camps in Kenya, home to 300,000 refugees, 100,000 of whom have been born there, have grown up there, become adults there, have spent their formative years in a camp environment. Those protracted refugee situations are a tragedy and a waste of humanity. Access to education is often limited. Access to work is often prohibited by governments. So success, success for me means to give people back autonomy and dignity who are in those situations. And the focus of my work is on the economic inclusion of refugees, because I see that as the key to helping them progress with their lives, enabling them to be hosted sustainably in a way that benefits the host countries, allows globally us to have a solution to the challenge of refuge that works for the international community without requiring people to embark on perilous, dangerous journeys in which they risk their lives. And it potentially allows people to develop skills and have the human capacities that when they go home, mean they can contribute to the rebuilding of countries like Syria, South Sudan, Myanmar, Afghanistan. If we leave people idle, locked out of education, unable to work while they're in exile, that has a really detrimental effect on the future trajectory of a country like Syria when people eventually go home. They have to have skills and abilities to work. So for me, success is economic inclusion in exile, giving people autonomy and dignity. How does our research contribute to that? Well, we've embarked on a study following 12,500 refugees and host community members over a period of time in Ethiopia, Uganda, and Kenya, training refugees as enumerators, peer researchers in that data collection so that we can show to the world that policies like the right to work for refugees, like creating enabling environments with good quality education, good quality health, vocational training, makes a difference, allows those people to thrive rather than merely survive and make a contribution to those host states and societies so that we can persuade countries to change their laws and persuade international organizations and NGOs to empower refugees to help themselves and contribute. And so in researching what Spark does and what we consider in many respects quite um quite praiseworthy in, in approach and in execution, one must acknowledge, you know, some of the skeptics out there who, who feel that the West's role in defining a need for intervention and the terms of intervention, uh, critics of foreign aid as a genre, you know, and now perhaps it's, it's more modern cousin impact investment and, and other similar notions. I'm sure you've heard many critiques of these issues. What would you say is the best one you've heard? That's a very good question because I have many things. I think now working about 25 years soon in 
this international development and I've become more, well, let's say positive, realistic. Um, Sorry, positive, realistic. Do you mean pragmatic? No, let's formulate it in a positive way, realistic, because one could say that I'm sometimes more skeptical. Um, or you might be jaded, for instance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's. Um, I mean, I've seen many instances, I think, and that's where I draw the line, where actually an intervention can have a very negative consequence. And I think one of the obvious ones is by um, creating aid economies um, that basically disincentivize uh, people's own initiative. I think this is what I've seen time and again. And I mean, even here in the Netherlands, let's take the Netherlands. Let's not look at Africa or, or the Middle East. Let's, let's look at the Netherlands for a moment. I mean, there's Syrian refugees arriving here that are stuck in paperwork processing for more than a year. We then approach a collective center, ask if we can do some entrepreneurship training with them, if we can do some educational programs with them. And the answer was no, because they are still in the process. You can't touch them. So even in the Netherlands, we're stucking people away, um, well-fed. Um, they get a nice room. So like they get a nice humanitarian, let's say, um, a response. But we take away something that's far more important, and that's our initiative. And in countries where actually refugees arrive and maybe they're addressed not as a refugee, but as a potential expert or as a, as a good worker, I think people will get activated much quicker. Like you look at Germany, for example, I think they're doing much better than the Netherlands as far as what I've been seeing in terms of formulating it as a potential workforce instead of just something you need to uh, over-resource in a humanitarian response. It also undermines very often these states because if you look at the state level and you see how much aid is flowing around in some of these fragile states, at some point it becomes the biggest proportion of the GDP. So then what does that do to a country? I think we have to really think these things through very carefully um, because that means that then the political elite becomes maybe more responsive to the international donors than to its own population. Um, you disincentivize on a state level the ability to raise your own income, how hard that may uh, even be. Um, so I think that's for me maybe the yeah the biggest trapping of aid is to disincentivize own initiative, um, entrepreneurship, um, local leadership by over resourcing. That's not to say you shouldn't have a humanitarian response and let people just die. Of course not. But I think in some locations I think we're way overdoing it with over resourcing programming, organizations coming in with the right buzzwords. You know, you just fly around your proposals and you get it funded. I think that can be very damaging. Or is very damaging. We're taking a quick break to tell you a little more about Spark, the presenting sponsor of the series. Spark is a Dutch NGO with a difference. Since being founded by two Dutch students in the 1990s to stem the degradation of higher education in the Balkans, the organization has grown to deliver expert services in 15 of the world's most vulnerable countries, including Libya, Liberia, and Syria. Spark bridges the gap between higher education and entrepreneurship by providing scholarships to displaced people, catalyzing student participation through civic leadership, and providing entrepreneurs with the support they need to succeed. To learn more about how Spark is rebuilding futures through vocational education and SME growth programs in the Middle East, as well as North and Sub-Saharan Africa, visit sparkonline.org. That's spark-online.org. And now, back to the conversation. Alexander, speak to the tension between, you know, the very real need for Western countries who have to contend with the scary colonial legacy they've left behind in many parts of the world, 
the tension between that and perhaps the ongoing stripping of agency that one observes. All you have to do is sort of turn on the television. It's often perhaps on the BBC sometimes, on the CNN. And you might get the sense that if it weren't for, I don't know, country X, Africa just wouldn't know what to do with itself or, or figure out how to, to feed itself or economically empower itself. And there are oversimplifications in that direction. So speak to that tension between these two things. Uh, within the modern context, uh, you have a growing uh, army of of Africans and really, you know, citizens in other parts of the world that are fragile um, and emerging who are starting to take exception to the notion that the brand of help they're getting or being offered is basically going to solve everything, every single problem they have. Yeah. I mean, I agree with a lot of what Yannick's just said. In, in conflicts and crisis, there's a need to address people's immediate vulnerabilities. And that's a shared global responsibility. So if people arrive having fled a crisis or conflict, it shouldn't just be that the host country on the doorstep takes responsibility. It's a shared global responsibility. But the key is to recognize and support people's agency. There are real vulnerabilities in displacement crises, but there are also capacities People have the ability to help themselves. They have skills, talents, aspirations. And so everything that humanitarianism and development does has to be about enabling people to stand up for themselves, have voice within their communities, and for communities to be partners and collaborators in shaping their own trajectories. And at the moment, I think the international aid system is far too top down. It needs innovative organizations like Spark to come in and try and innovatively re-empower those communities to help themselves. One of the data points that's really striking from my research is how much in refugee communities, when people have an immediate emergency or a food shortage, they rely not just on international organizations and NGOs, but on their own communities. Um, refugee-led organizations are a big source of support. Yesterday in Kampala, um, my team was part of co-organizing an event um, of the, the launch of a new network of refugee-led organizations. And that's about saying there's meaningful work being done in those communities, but they're often locked out of international funding sources, international recognition. They don't meet the standards of kind of Western humanitarianism for audit and accounting. And we need to recognize that agency to a much greater extent, both because it's a much more efficient way to help refugees and displaced people, but also because it's a way of addressing those underlying power asymmetries that are alienating and in many ways infantilizing of the communities on which we sometimes impose our aid. Now, in terms of the sort of general post-colonial legacies of aid in Africa, I think Europe no longer has a moral high ground to speak to Africa, even on questions like democratization. Um, when we have the rise of populist nationalism on our own continent, when we have examples of contemporary weak governance, what right do we have as Europeans to speak to African states from a position of moral vantage? There are many highly successful increasingly well-governed African states that actually offer lessons that Europe should follow. And I see that in my own area of refugees. Uganda, a progressive country host to around 1.4 million refugees, lets those refugees have the right to work and freedom of movement. That can't be said for all European countries. So somehow... And the irony of that, obviously, given all the other considerable or notable 
you know, worrying aspects of uh, public leadership in that country. Just again, I think speaks to the complexity of this debate in general, wherever you are in the world. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of the time it's, it's oversimplistic to talk about country A and country B. Often it's about the quality of individual elite leadership. We can take a country like Uganda and we can say in certain areas like refugee policy, it's the darling of the international community. But in other areas, its relationship with its own population is questionable and slightly more problematic. And equally, we could see examples of good leadership on behalf of, say, refugees in Europe. Uh, and we can see really lamentable examples of xenophobia perpetrated by so-called political leaders in countries like Hungary and Italy. And so I think it, the dichotomy of global north and global south needs to be increasingly problematized and, and no longer holds as a, a sort of locus of credible moral authority to say this block, by virtue of having resources, has the right to determine valid governance to another group of states. And so, Yannick, give me a sense of how you go about addressing much of what Alexander's talked about in terms of how not to go about things or how best to, to frame one's thinking as you go about things. And then, you know, use that perhaps as a, as a springboard for explaining the quote-unquote spark approach to getting stuck in. I think there's a lot of things that one can say about the aid system. Um, and one of the things that I like that Alexander is referring to is the top-down design of the current system, which I would say in business terms, that business model is basically broken. Um, I love that you call it a business model because that's what some people, you know, cynically call the whole foreign aid fraternity. It's, it is, in fact, enterprise. No, it is. And I mean, one of the first things that I realized when we started back in the days with Spark is that rather than the NGO sector, I, very often I see it more as a small, medium enterprise sector and the client being the donor community and um you apply with your proposal is basically you're doing a bid um, as a company would, you know, and um, the only difference being that because you're nonprofit, you have a predefined uh, profit, which is a 7% overhead. <laughs> so um, simplifying it a bit, but I think that business model is broken because, I mean, look at telecom, look at internet, look at the way we, we do shopping today, the way we, you know, um, everything is these days um, more and more transparent, online available, the product is much closer to the user. And the same is actually happening in aid, um, or at least we're trying to enable this. Um, I think too often I see examples where organizations that are pretending by charter to be there to actually create local development and build capacity of the local actor, that when push comes to shove and there is a tender out there, uh, they will apply. And they will apply even if they're local counterpart uh, wants to also apply and win the tender and they will go stop at nothing to win it um, even over the backs of their local partner i've seen that many times <laughs> actually very interestingly enough we we had a big um, discussion in um, the uh, umbrella organization of dutch ngos years ago where we had a new charter for the dutch ngo um, sector and one of the things that we proposed is that we would basically in case of a clash of interests over a tender opportunity that well, always the Dutch organization would have to withdraw. Um, now that was vetoed by the majority of the persons in that room. And I mean, the problem is, I think, with this approach, and this is why I'm very hopeful, is that if your business model is stuck, you know, it's broken, then it's not going to help you to just keep pushing it. Because at some point, if it's broken, you know, you can't fix it and, and you will be caught up by more innovative approaches. 
So maybe to give one example where we've tried this is with our current scholarship program. So we have about 10,000 Syrian refugees uh, next year uh, that either completed or are part of a higher vocational higher education scholarship in um, the MENA region. And it's wildly cost-effective. So it was rated as 2.5 times more cost-effective than the next runner-up in the bid uh, with one of our donors. And why was that? Because we just basically realized that we are nothing more than just a broker. You know, we need to close deals with 25 universities on the ground. We need to set up an online and offline registration system of these students. Uh, they can fill out their own application to the great extent uh, we will help in the camps. Um, and the only thing you're doing is brokering. So you need only a very tech-heavy light on staff, light on overhead system to basically match the demand and the need. Um, and that brought us to factor 2.5 uh, relative to the second runner-up. And then on the donor meeting where we were all sitting with five of these implementers um, with one of these major donors, and they asked us all the question, what's our vision for the next five years? Our vision was that we do not exist anymore in scholarships in the MENA region in five years because that is already no longer needed. Uh, you can give the funding directly to the local universities, the local partners. They can implement it. You do not need an international NGO anymore. Um, tellingly, I think I was attacked in that room by at least uh, three out of four other providers. Um, uh, the, um, the verbal and nonverbals were quite uh, explicit. So tell me, you know, you got to it, you know, as you were sort of flowing there. But it, it occurred to me that, you know, one of the biggest criticisms of foreign aid is that, if it's driven by the purported values that, you know, exist in the rhetoric, it shouldn't exist, you know, at a certain point in, in time because the work's been done and autonomy has been delivered or capacity has been built into structures and geographic regions that perhaps didn't have it before. Essentially, problems have been solved, therefore we should move on. You're affirming a suspicion I've always had that part of the problem is the work is never finished because it's perhaps engineer that way well i don't think it's a big scheme you know i i mean i i had a phase that i thought you know like maybe it's a big scheme and the industry is trying to keep itself alive but i think that's too simplistic and actually even if that were to be the case you know which i don't think it is again but then i think it just puts a lot of um focus on how donors design their grant schemes how they design their interventions because it, it kind of matters you know if a donor tells you, well, your main outcome is that in two years' time, you have capacitated a local partner so they can be the next grantee, and we're going to pay you to achieve that. Or you tell a implementer, well, we will just count the number of people that you've run through a training and that you've directly implemented. And I think the problem is that very often the KPIs, because of political pressure, because also with the refugee crisis, we saw this, it was about how do we keep refugees in the region? So here you have a lot of funding to put them in university there so that keep them home and happy yeah keep them there so they don't walk here um if you design it as such you're building a machinery uh, of implementers that has one objective that's to put people there in university and they will continue to do so until you tell them to stop right so i think it's then about the donor to say no our ultimate objective and where we're going to judge you on is not how many people you put through an education in jordan uh, of the Syrian population, but your ultimate objective is that we're going to pay you if you achieve um, being out of your own job in five years and that you have found a local implementing partner and that's when you're going to get a premium on that. Um, I think you need to incentivize the system as any economy. You need to incentivize the right uh, triggers. But I don't think it's like some pre-designed plan of... I mean, I can imagine, you know, so with the whole colonial uh, history that sometimes people think 
there is a grand scheme. Cue conspiracy theory music. <laughs> well, I mean, but I always like this American saying, I mean, don't explain with uh, conspiracy, which can be well explained by plain stupidity. And I think that's what's happening. I mean, people are politicians, they see a crisis, they throw in the money, they have short-term objectives, they want to be reelected. I mean, what else do we need to explain there? You know, I and mean, this, this is how it works. And then if you then expect somehow that from that design, you get a very capacitated long-term uh, <laughs> development system, uh, you're wrong. So I think one is about us convincing our donors that they need to think more long-term. Um, I think the other thing, and that's what I love about countries like um, uh, strong countries like Jordan or Turkey now, is that they're no longer just taking this and some African countries and saying, well, wait a second, you know, we have a policy, we have a long-term view. If you fit in that, you're welcome. If not, then you're not. And I think it's also very important that these states become more self-aware um, and start putting the limitations of um, what they will accept and what they will not accept. Let's talk about some of the simplistic views on the role of technology and innovation in in ushering in a whole new dispensation of of progress and economic prosperity in places like East Africa. Um, apparently, all is well because M-Pesa or Zipline or because Mark Zuckerberg reckons that, you know, internet is a right, will solve everything. So let's just make sure every kid's got a, a smartphone and a broadband connection. Give me your sense of what you've observed in the East African region, which, to be fair, is world-leading in in what's safe to say is a mobile revolution, um, a pragmatic attitude towards, hey, these tools can actually help us do things that make life more bearable, more efficient, more profitable for ourselves. So while that is true, give me a sense of what you've observed as far as the oversimplification around the digital transformation narrative. So in the humanitarian space over the last five or 10 years, there's been a sort of technology and innovation turn. And it's been recognized that actually all of the trends we see in the wider world have an application to improving the lives of refugees and displaced populations. And that that's true to some extent. There are exciting opportunities. Um, refugees are using SMS. Access to mobile phones are almost endemic across refugee populations where people have access to smartphones and broadband. They use them and not just to stay in touch with their social networks and, and to use WhatsApp to be in touch with friends and family, but as part of their livelihoods activities to stay in touch with customers, to run businesses, to do money transfer. But I think part of the sort of global debate, the aesthetic around innovation has been to slightly overly focus on fetishize, if you like, the product, the shiny new gadget emerging from Silicon Valley, a solution looking for a problem to attach itself to. Thank God for Facebook free basics or something. Absolutely. Or, or let's take something that exists in Silicon Valley, is effective in a consumer market in California, and then try and find a humanitarian application. Like VR for like children who want to reconnect with their bygone childhood or something. And all of those examples are examples of the CSR office or the social engagement office looking for an application that takes a company's brand global. Um, equally, though, we have really exciting opportunities that are region specific. I mean, in East Africa, companies like Safaricom um, in Kenya, uh, MTM in Uganda, they've really embraced offering services to refugees, recognizing that the volume of calls they make, the ways in which they use SMS, the ways in which they use money transfer, M-Pesa, are exciting opportunities for core business. 
And those opportunities are transformative. International organizations are embracing that. So, for instance, in Kenya, in the Dadaab and Kakuma refugee camps, the World Food Program has pioneered something called Bamba Chakula, an artificial currency, uh, Bamba Chakula meaning get your food in Swahili, that allows people to receive via their phone a form of cash and spend it on a designated set of commodities. It's not the same as getting cash assistance, but it does give them choice to spend their money with licensed uh, shops run by refugees and the host community. Those examples are extremely positive. I think what I want to distinguish between is things that genuinely empower refugees to have greater choice, greater freedom, greater opportunity to autonomously define their own trajectories versus solutions that are shaped by outside tech companies that often have very little interaction with crisis-affected communities and are more interested in the profit margin or the brand and the visibility of their product than co-producing. I think a lot is made of sort of co-design within the innovation space. The key for me is we should be looking at problems as they are perceived by people and exist on the ground and co-creating solutions that are fit for purpose in context rather than saying that the generic solution created outside is a good fit for all problems that you find everywhere, irrespective of context. Perhaps a as a parting shot, um, I'm going to give you both an opportunity to choose what you want to speak to. Either um, the last time you and your team, uh, Yannick, perhaps scored a win that just left you gratified at the work you get to do every day. So you were sitting in your boardroom or taking in a report or you, you observed something perhaps on the ground on a visit that just validated your sense of why you get up in the morning to do what you do, leading the charge for Spark. Alex, perhaps, you know, you could go in that direction as well. Or perhaps you might want to leave our audience with a sense of what is too frequently overlooked as an issue, a disturbing trend, a signal we've all missed, perhaps something lurking in your research that too few people sort of get stuck in to discover. It can go either way, folks. Um, I'll leave it to you to pick which one. I'll start with you, Yannick. I was hoping you are going to ask... Um talk about something that was just like a brilliant failure or something that's completely messed up in our work and what we learned from it. I would take the second, but... So that would be... So, okay, cool. Just scratch my question and, and give us that because that sounds fun to me. When was the last time, you know, there was a royal mess up <laughs> and and you were at the center of it and what maybe did you learn? Or perhaps how, what has it uh, taught you about how to do things next time? Th that's something really about what's often overlooked actually in the sector, if I, if I may say so. There is so much a drive for showing success that sometimes people forget and actually you learn most from things that don't work out, if, at least when you talk about it and you're open. Um, now, one of the things that, and I'll go back a little bit in time, is when we started our scholarship program, we had such a massive fail. And What year is this? This was four years ago. Yeah, it was about four years ago. And it was pre what they refer to in Europe as refugee crisis, which started way before that. But when they say in the West refugee crisis, we, we mean when some people decided to take it no longer and walk our way. Um, not when it really started and they were being in, stuck in camps in the region. Um, and at that time, there was a motion in parliament you know, under preparation to rescue Syrian 
students. I always love these programs. Rescue, you know, like this is really... Is this here in the Netherlands? Yes, it's in the Netherlands. It has a nice colonial ring to it. You know, we need to rescue, yes. And so we were skeptical. We didn't really re respond to it. But then we were approached by our government if we could pitch a proposal because they had received a proposal for, I think, a million euro to put 30 kids in university for a year. And we said, well... We I thought you were going to say it to go hire Rambo and like drop him <laughs> drop him in the middle of the conflict and like airlift people out or something. No, it was just, it was a, it, it was a lobby group basically uh, of one NGO who basically wanted a new project and they thought it was a good idea and we actually first declined to bid because we said look I mean really are you going to take 30 kids from Syria to the Netherlands to study here you know I mean this highly cost ineffective put the money in the camps in Turkey you know and so but then came back because you know the there was only one bidding party it was like completely overpriced so <laughs> we love a challenge so we bid it 15,000 euro versus 1 million to implement it just 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 for fun and we had an intern run it and it was very simple and we but we immediately run into this problem that um at the end of the day from 900 applications only 17 were highly qualified enough to be able to study at a dutch university guess what they were all sons and daughters of what i mean of elite right already safe in istanbul you know business people so we've just basically subsidized the <laughs> the continuous learning of rich kids right this is what they did and but as failure actually was very important because then we had our proof of concept, or let's say we had a proof of non-concept. And then in discussion with our government and with people in the parliament, we said, look, look at that and look at the facts, you know? We just educated, uh, we couldn't even find 30 out of 900 because most of them don't have a GMAT test, you know? Or they don't speak proper English because they were studying in the countryside of Aleppo. So what do you expect? Um, and so we then, then got the rest of the money and spent it actually with the University of Gaziantep in Turkey, where we set up a program that after two years we handed over to them and until today is funded directly by our government to that university without a single bit of spark involvement. So I really love that failure because by taking on that glove, we could demonstrate what we had been suspecting. Uh, we really tried, but it came out as we suspected and then could turn it around into local support, um, locally managed. And that is what is today our largest uh, 10,000 uh, scholarships program. And I think now our next challenge is to make sure that we pull out. Um, uh, Pro pro uh, render yourselves redundant after. <laughs> yeah, within the next five years, I th I'm 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 uh, I'm really confident that, that if we don't get out of this in the next five years, hand over to local groups, that uh, we have failed. You know, we have failed as an organization. Fantastic. Well, I'm glad you hijacked that situation. Uh, <laughs> in terms of the last question, you get to answer. What do you have on your mind, Alex? Um, I'd like to say something to listeners about a piece of research that we've completed recently that we'll publish in the new year. And it's really about what difference refugees having the right to work makes to them and host communities. Um, the study we've done and we're about to publish is comparing the outcomes of Uganda's refugee policy with Kenya's. Um, Uganda and Kenya are neighbors. They host many of the same refugee populations from Somalia, Democratic Republic of Congo, South Sudan, Burundi, but they have almost diametrically opposite refugee policies. Uganda lets refugees work and move freely in its so-called self-reliance strategy. Kenya insists that refugees live in camps and limits their right to work in its so-called encampment policy. And so by looking at the economic lives of Somali refugees and Congolese, we found a number of striking things, data to support what difference the Ugandan model makes, holding other variables constant. And we found four really interesting things that it does. 
Firstly, it increases refugees' mobility. So refugees from Democratic Republic of Congo and Somalis who are in Uganda are 30% more likely to have been able to leave the camps or settlements and go to cities uh, going backwards and forwards over the last year. And that's really important for their economic strategies, their businesses, their supply chains. The second thing we found is that there are much lower transaction costs to economic activity. So the level of bribes or levels of arrests um, endured by refugees living in urban areas is about 30 times less um, in Kampala compared to Nairobi. The third thing we've been able to show is that incomes are higher for refugees in Uganda, in the sites we've looked at, compared to Kenya, despite the surrounding host populations generally being better off than the refugees. We found holding other factors constant, being a refugee in Kenya is likely to lead to uh, a 16% lower income than being a refugee in Uganda. And the final thing we've been able to show is that the sources of employment are quite different. So in Uganda, sources of employment tend to come from refugees employing other refugees. Refugees are creators of jobs for other people when given the chance. Whereas in Kenya, jobs mainly come in camps from NGOs and international organizations, from so-called incentive work, or in cities from uh, nationals of the host population. So I'm excited by that because what it does, it gives us a chance to say what works about that model, attach data to those areas of analysis, isolate some of the causal effects and be able to say to countries around the world, refugees can thrive rather than merely survive when we give them socioeconomic freedoms like the right to work. I'll certainly be looking out for that research then. Thank you. So listen, folks, thank you so much for being on the show. Alexander Betts of Oxford University. And of course, Yannick Dupont of, of Spark. Thank you so much for your time and being on the African Tech Roundup. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.